You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. And we are right in the middle of some incredibly interesting playoff series as we record this We are looking ahead to Game 4 of the ALCS tonight and Game 5 of the NLCS tonight. So, be forewarned, any of our hot takes may be incredibly stale by the time you listen to them. Please feel free to let us know uh, on Twitter, as I'm sure you will all do. We're going to start with the National League last night for us. It was a 13-inning game between the Dodgers and the Brewers. And it was so, I don't know, for me, it was maybe the most interesting game of the entire postseason. I know people were frustrated by the incredible amount of strikeouts. To me, I think that was a credit to some of the amazing pitching we saw. Um, there is like 25 different things I want to talk about with this game. But I think we have to start with Manny Machado because he was probably, I don't know, the biggest story of the game for reasons both positive and not so much. Obviously, everybody's talking about his incident with Jesus Aguiar at first base. But this is the StatCast show, is it not? We have StatCast numbers on Manny Machado. Where do you want to start with Manny Machado? Well, the, the, the real story for Manny Machado yesterday, at least all day going into the day, was his comments to Ken Rosenthal yes. about <laughs> his feelings about hustling or not hustling, as it were. Basically, he said, hustling is, quote unquote, not my cup of tea, which is an amazing quote for a variety of reasons. And I think the message isn't that terrible. He, it was just delivered really poorly. Um, you know, I think for a, a star player whose speed is not part of his game, you know, it really doesn't make that much of a difference if he runs hard on every ground ball, especially with how hard he hits it. He made the point, like, if I hit a hard ground ball right at the shortstop, I'm out. Yeah, I I agree with you. I really don't care how hard he runs out regular ground balls. Uh, You should definitely read that article by Ken Rosenthal in The Athletic uh, with Manny Machado, because he kind of wrote the whole thing with the Arrested Development narrator voice, where Manny Machado would say, well, I smashed this ball 100 miles an hour to shortstop, and then parentheses it would be, actually, it was 76 miles an hour, (laughs) which is fantastic. But anyway, um, Manny Machado last night scored the winning run of the game in the 13th inning, and it was really interesting to me, because if you look at the StatCast numbers, he had elite for him hustle on that play, which is phenomenal based on what you just said, Matt, that that had been a huge story for him uh, earlier in the se- in the series. We tracked over 850 runs for Manny Machado this year. His 26.2 feet per second sprint speed is not strong. It's actually below average. He's 26.2 feet. The league average is 27 feet. So he was 399th of 549 qualifiers. That's the 27th percentile. He was 50th of 53rd shortstops. That's the 6th percentile. And he was tied for 15th of 18 Dodgers. The only one he was meaningfully ahead of was Yasmani Grandal, who's a catcher. He's not really uh, an elite speed. He's such a talented player in many other ways. But top sprint speed is not really his strength. Now, on that game, on that play last night, remember, we tracked 850 runs from him this year. His sprint speed was 28.7 feet per second. That was the fifth fastest that he's had all year long which is really cool. Like that says to me uh, that you really can turn it on when you need to in big spots. We're going to get to that again uh, with pitchers in a minute. Uh, Number one for him, 28.9 feet per second, a triple, his first triple with the Dodgers right after being traded. Yeah, we saw we saw this last year with the uh, with the famous Altuve play. Yes. uh, Against the uh, against the Yankees, I guess. I forget forget what game it was was when he scored from first in the Correa triple to win the game. Sanchez dropped the ball. Yeah. Yeah. And but it was Correa, you know, like Altuve had beaten his top sprint speed by almost like a it was like a 
one like feet per second. It was it was a distinct. I forget the exact numbers, but we saw and that was sort of the evidence of like players can find that extra gear in in the moment. And you know, Machado's an interesting case because also like he's had some serious leg injuries running the bases. Yes. So like it's not that surprising. <laughs> he might have some um some sort of hesitancy to go all out on every play. And like the the sprint speed numbers we have are nothing new. In 2016, he was 26.1 feet per second. Last year, he was 26.3. This year, he's right in the middle of 26.2. So although he is a an athletic-looking player and came up with a little faster, he is a below-average runner at this point in his career. You know, people have asked me uh, how we can make a hustle metric, and it's actually really complicated. Because in order to show hustle, you'd have to show a guy who is doing something above his average, right? But what if you are, let's say, I don't know, Billy Hamilton, and you are going at your top average all of the time, and it's not really possible for him to get higher than elite. Would we penalize him for not hustling because he's always hustling? Like It's actually a really complicated thing to unpack, and it's kind of cool. Um, I'm just not sure there's a great answer as to how to do it yet. Yeah, the other thing that also made, you know, going back to Machado's speed, the play before, he advanced a second on a wild pitch that didn't get that far away from Eric Kratz. That actually might have been... Uh, a more impressive um, in terms of like instincts and speed because obviously Bellinger hits the single he's obviously going all out no matter what like he's going to try and score but like the the not so wild pitch was a a more uh, impressive uh, base running play so that got him to second base where Cody Bellinger then drove him in with the winning run and it was kind of an interesting game theory setup because you know the, the first base was open after the wild pitch so you could have walked Cody Bellinger, and that brings up Yasmani Grandal, who has really just been atrocious for the last couple of weeks. He's a, he sort of has lost his job to Austin Barnes right now. And you could have pitched to, to Grandal, who's been struggling, or you could have walked him, loaded the bases. Here's where it gets fun. The Dodgers had no more hitters on the bench at this point. They only had their pitcher, Julio Urias. I don't think Craig Council actually would have had you know the guts to do that. That would have been a lot of fun, right? Like Imagine him trying to do that. Julio Urias, who is four for twenty nine in his major league career, um, I don't think he can do it. I mean, granted, Garrett at that point had thrown almost four innings, but like to put, I guess you said the council apparently said he would have done it. If- so I, I heard him on MLB Network Radio this morning, and what he said was that he was he instructed Garrett to try to work around Bellinger. You know, don't intentionally walk him, uh, but don't throw him anything good to hit, and you hope Bellinger expands his zone, which he kind of did. It ended up being it worked out for the Dodgers. Anyway. He's also been pretty cold too. Maybe you know, yeah, Grandel's struggles go go both ways. He's been terrible at the plate and in the field, where Bellinger has just been bad at the plate. But like, he's also been one of the weak spots for the Dodgers this postseason. But not in the field. You may have noticed that earlier in the game, Cody Bellinger made a fantastic looking play, and I personally was pretty stoked about it because the data backed it up. Uh, We had it as a 17% catch probability play off the bat of Lorenzo Cain. He needed to run 61 feet. He actually ran 63 feet. He had 3.7 seconds to get there. It looked great, and 17% means that basically eight times out of 10, that opportunity is not converted into an out. It's the best catch of the 2018 postseason so far. The top four are all Cody Bellinger and Lorenzo Cain. Uh, Bellinger versus Cain last night. Lorenzo Cain had a 27%er against David Fries in Game 1. Bellinger had a 37%er against Marcakis in the NLDS. And Lorenzo Cain had a 40%er against Charlie Blackman in Game 1 of the NLDS. It was the fifth best catch in the postseason in the four years we've been tracking this. Do you know what number one was? And I didn't know this until I looked it up. And it was so satisfying to me because I've been referencing this catch for like three years without realizing what the number was. A 3% catch by Curtis Granderson in the 2016 National League wildcard game. You may remember this play. That was, uh, was 
it was uh, Baumgartner versus I can't remember Syndergaard. Syndergaard, right? Uh, incredible pitcher's duel, right? And Brandon Belt gets up and just destroys this ball dead center. It's weird to think Curtis Granderson playing center field in a postseason game right now, but that's where we were two years ago. Uh, Granderson goes straight back, so that's an extra bonus for that. Slams into the wall, so an extra bonus for that. Makes an incredible catch. Takes away a clear extra base hit from Ben and Bell. That is the best catch in the postseason we've seen so far. And that is definitely one where we've seen the new um, adjustments for right. catch probability built in, because when it happened... It was not they, 3%. It, it was not 3%, but since... Uh, uh, our colleague Tom Tango built in sort of a a bonus, if you will, for going straight back um, on balls and into, and, and into the wall. It's made that a three percent catch. What would the one that the one in NLCS game one that Kane dropped? Surprisingly, that was going to be about like a. It was real low. It, it was in that. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be like real low. So yeah, if he'd made that catch, that would have probably been the best catch. It was. I was. I was in the ballpark for that. That uh, for game one of the NLCS in Milwaukee. It was my first ever trip to Miller Park. It was. It was an awesome experience, and it was shocking in person to see him even get because off the bat the whole stadium just like groan because at first everyone thought oh this is going out the game's about to be tied and then it was like wait it's maybe not going to go out wait is Kane actually going to catch this and Lorenzo Kane getting there getting it getting the it pocket of his glove, glove. that's a ball he catches it was like so shocking on like four different levels um but that's I mean that's Kane in a in a nutshell right there everything leading up to the catch that, that he was able to make up make a play that was basically impossible he almost made it look easy Yes, he's, he's one of my favorite players to watch. He has an 80-grade smile, which I think is important in baseball today. Uh, but back to, to Bellinger, you know, he has kind of shown he can be an elite-level defensive first baseman. Now he's shown he can be a very good outfielder. Uh, he's actually played a lot of center this year. He had barely played right field at all before last night, like 11 innings. 11 innings, I, think, I saw. All, is all it was. Uh, and it's kind of it's it's interesting to look at him and say, you know, is this a guy who should really maybe be an outfielder? I looked this up the other day. He is one of only 11 player seasons, basically ever, to play 50 games at first base and center field in the same season. Nick Swisher did it in 2008, and before that, no one had done it since Lee Mazzilli for the immortal 1980 New York Mets. Like, that is a profile you just don't ever see, and that doesn't necessarily lend itself to greatness, I guess. It's just, it's kind of weird. You couldn't imagine, like, 90% of first baseman faking it in center field for even a minute, and he does both very well. I'm fascinated by Bellinger for that reason, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in, in sort of player profiles uh sort of to borrow, to, to borrow a, a scouting term so you know kind of like putting players in certain boxes like oh he's like this guy he's like that guy and Bellinger there's not really anyone like him and he came up last year you know this like lanky left-handed hitting uh guy who plays center and and uh first with a really upright stance like very few people oh, yeah. hit, uh, hit as upright as he does he came up last year he was on fire for the first two months of his career as a rookie hit 25 homers in the first half of the season he was basically going toe-to-toe with judge for rookie home runs, everyone's like, "Who's going to break the rookie home run record first? Um, since the second half of last year, he's he's sort of settled into being like a good, not great player, and it's like I'm sort of wondering. I don't know where he is uh, on the spectrum. He had a four win season this year, and it's like almost a disappointment, which I think says more about our expectations for him uh, than for anything else. But there are some indi- indicators. You know, his his expect expected weight on base was way down this year. It was 360 last year, 318 this year. His hard hit rate was way down. It was 45.7% last year, which was like top 10% of the league. This year it was 38.1. So the 138 weighted runs created plus last year is, you know, close to elite. This year, 120. But the the quality of contact metrics do not scream star. Also, he, he was 
awesome against lefties. He showed no platoon split as a rookie and struggled against lefties this year with like a 650 OPS. Right. And I guess that's kind of the league adjusting to him. I don't I don't think it's fair to say he's going to be, you know, a top 10 player in baseball. But if he's even a slightly above average hitter who can play a good center field in first base, uh, that's a valuable player. Yeah, I don't really know. I'm not even passing judgment. I just don't really know. I, right now, it's sort of like most players, I feel like I get a really good sense of what, what I think of them. And I don't really... He's still kind of abstract to me. It's like I don't anything from average player to superstar would not surprise me at this point. There's so much I want to get into from last night's game, and we're going to get to Red Sox Astros as well. Uh, but we just talked for a second about Manny Machado and how he was able to really bring his top speed when he needed it. And I kind of was looking at a lot of the pitchers from last night. Did you know that there were about six different guys who showed some of their best velocity of the entire season last night? Josh Hader threw a 98.1 mile an hour pitch to Machado. That was his eighth fastest fastball of the year he threw more than a thousand uh, freddie peralta hit 95.9 miles an hour to max muncie that was his second fastest of the year kenley jansen and this is huge because such a big story for kenley jansen this year was that he was throwing 91 92 and getting pounded he hit 95.7 to whiff jesus aguiar that was his second fastest cutter of the entire season that's an enormous deal for the dodgers uh junior gary hit 95.7 that was his ninth fastest and urias hit 95 2 to Christian Yelich, that was his fourth fastest of only 40. But again, this is a guy who'd missed like an entire year with a shoulder injury. So him hitting 95 is a big deal. And Freddie Peralta, I had such... Oh, wait, wait. I, I'm getting interrupted here. Breaking news alert. You're actually forgetting someone. Okay. I don't know how you miss this person. This person threw his three fastest pitches of the year last night. Okay. I... Sorry, no, I got... The... Sorry, I take it back. I take it back. I was looking... I saw October, wrong date. I take so, it back. So you, you jumped in there to totally uh, drop some fake news on us. I did, yeah. Who, that are, was... you, who are you going to say? Well, I was going to say... Uh, Corbin Burns. Yes, but no. Because no, he <laughs> it was in October fourth. He threw his his three yes. fastest pitches of the of the year. So I saw. I was looking. I was doing a query. He sorry. He threw his his fifth pa- fastest pitch of the year last night. Ninety seven point seven miles per yeah, hour. Never so po- he did. He did. He did crack one of his uh his one of his top ten. So never podcast and query at he, the same. But no, he, I, I was right. <laughs> he had two in his top ten last night. Well, add to the list. Regardless, the the point is. Look at all these guys who are like, you know, after a long season in some cases, who are reaching back and finding it. I mean, I, I, you know, this is not the show where we talk about the human element very often, but it's pretty clear that when these guys need to find something extra, it's there. Like, these are the biggest moments and they are living up to it. It's adrenaline. It's the extra days of rest, which I still think people don't really fully appreciate. Um, but I think that those two things combined uh, really, the, the, the pitching you see in the postseason now. I mean, with the way the Brewers bullpen has been the last couple games, you know, everyone was talking about them as a big storyline. Their starters have been particularly, especially good. But the bullpen now, Jeffers has really struggled. And I look at the Brewers bullpen and I'm like, I think Jeffers might be their fourth best reliever right now. I would take Hader, Canable, possibly Burns and Soria ahead of him right now in terms of trusting him. In a, in a in a big you, spot. Are you counting Woodruff as a reliever? Because I, I like yeah. Woodruff better too. The, you might, you might be number. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, and then of course there's Freddie Peralta. Freddie Peralta. Now we have talked about Freddie Peralta on the show before because when he came up, he was striking everybody out, and he only was throwing like ninety one, ninety two. Uh, now he can throw ninety six all of a sudden. Who knew? And when we talked about how he was able to do that, we went in depth and we said he had very high spin on his fastball. And he had elite fastball extension. So I think that really speaks to his deception. Uh, he's also kind of on the shorter side. So I just think that that's an angle that teams and hitters don't see very often. He did something where he's going to be able to say he's on a list with only Pedro Martinez. So no matter what he does for the rest of his career, that's fun. In postseason history, only two times has a reliever pitched at least three innings in relief, striking out at least six and allowing zero hits. One of those was Freddie Peralta last night in game four. 
The other was Pedro Martinez in one of the more famous postseason games ever, the 1999 ALDS Game 5 against Cleveland, where he came in and threw six innings of shutout relief. That is it. Those are the only two days. I think if I recall correctly, the, he was like basically only throwing fastballs. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, was it the game where Troy O'Leary hit like a grand slam and a three-run homer, I think? I, I don't know, but I can give you a, a quick aside for a personal story. The previous game in that series, the Red Sox gave up like 23 runs. Uh, and I'd been living in Boston for about three weeks going to college. And I actually snuck into that game. You can't do it anymore because they rebuilt the way the turnstiles work. But I waited two innings and squeezed myself in and I got to see a game for free, which... Uh, I guess you shouldn't do. Don't try that at home, kids. You can't even do it anymore. But I had a good time doing that. Memory serves correctly, querying it. Uh, two home runs, seven RBIs. See, for I told that story, so there would be time for you to look up <laughs> these things. All right, one last thing on this game. I want to talk about maybe my favorite plate appearance of the entire season. Rich Hill struck out Christian Yelich, okay? But we have to explain how this happened. He fell behind 3-0. He threw three pitches high, a fastball and two curveballs. So you're Christian Yelich. You're ahead 3-0. You're in a pretty good spot. Rich Hill drops a curveball for a called strike. Rich Hill drops another curveball for a called strike. Rich Hill drops another curveball for a swinging strike. Who does that? Who who does that? Who comes back from 3-0 and just drops in three curveballs? The thing is, what was funny about the play, too, is like you knew he throws the, cur- the get-me-over curveball for strike one. Fine. Throws another one for strike two. At that point, you knew he was going to the curveball <laughs> right. again. Um, this curveball is good enough that even if you know it's coming, you still might not be able to hit it. Uh, but, you know, I just, I think that Everybody in the world says, well, it's 3-0. It's going to be a get-me-over fastball. you know. And that's not what happened for Rich Hill. It's, it's this idea that pitchers are really leaning into of, hey, what's your best pitch? Throw it more. And this whole sequence was so weird to me that I felt like I had to look it up and see how often this happened. And I want to thank uh, Jason Bernard on our research team who really did a, a lot of good work helping me with this. In the entire 2018 season, regular season and postseason before last night, there had only been 29 3-0 curveballs from actual pitchers, not position players pitching, out of over 7,600 3-0 pitches. So right there, stop. On a 3-0, you almost never see a curveball. You've seen it 29 times all season long. If you go back to 2015, postseason included, that exact sequence, 3-0, then three curves for a strikeout, had happened only twice before last night. One was A.J. Cole in August against Justin Smoke, and one was Bronson Arroyo last year against Stephen Piscotty. That and Rich Hill in the playoffs. Fun fact, Rich Hill had actually done this earlier this year, sort of, uh, against Milwaukee in Ju- on July 20th against Manny Pena. He'd gone behind 3 nothing and then thrown three straight curves. Now, it wasn't a strikeout and ended up with a flyout, but that's not the first time he's done that. And I, I just was watching that game and uh, watching that plate appearance and just blown away that this is what you would do to the guy who's going to be the most valuable player. I loved everything about that plate appearance. And Yelich is, I mean, he's had uh, he's had a weird postseason. It's actually kind of similar to Alex Bregman's in that he's like not really getting hits, but he is getting on base a lot. This this postseason thus far, he um, he's hitting, uh, he's got, he's, let me get this, let's hide this up a second. Ago. Well, I can tell you why you're looking that up. Uh, Kane and Yelich combined in the NLCS have hit 194, a 250 slugging, and a 241 weighted on base. Dodger pitching, they've done a really good job limiting those two guys. Yeah, but so Yelich for the postseason is 5 for 24 with 10 walks. So he's hitting 208, 441, 333. So he's getting on base. He's just not really doing any quote-unquote damage. And it's really interesting what they have done to Lorenzo Kane. So I, I looked this up. Uh, in the regular season, if you look at every pitch type except for curveballs, he saw 39% of those pitches coming higher than 2.5 feet off the ground. So basically the midpoint. In the NLCS... That 39% has jumped to 51%. So he's seeing a lot 
more balls high in the zone. And, you know, that's kind of like the Dodger style. They love to do that. And he just has not been able to, to do anything with it. Now, these are all tiny samples. You can find a good three games or a bad three games for pretty much any hitter. But a big part of this for the Dodgers is going to be, can you limit Lorenzo Cain and Kristen Yelich? So far, so good. Now, t- tonight, obviously, by the time most of you listen to this, we'll probably know the results. But a fascinating matchup is the is Yelich versus Clayton Kershaw, the uh, the Game 5 starter for the Dodgers. And Mike did a piece on the site today, basically looking into their the history of the Yelich-Kershaw matchup because the raw stats tell the story of Yelich dominating Kershaw, but the secondary stats, the, the quality of contact, tell a very different story. Yeah, I don't know that this is going to be a huge surprise to anybody who listens to a show like this, but I can tell you this. Clayton Kershaw against Kristen Yelich. So Kristen Yelich owns a 500 550 889 line that is a very large line it's actually the highest ops any hitter has off of clayton kershaw so you will probably hear things like christian yelich owns clayton kershaw and you know you can't look past those numbers and not notice that there have been a few home runs obviously but it's also completely meaningless as all pitcher versus hitter stats are because the samples are just too tiny uh as i said i'm sure many of you actually know this but when i looked into it a little bit more uh, so first off you have to throw away their one game from 2013 because we don't have stack cast numbers on that but for the record three strikeouts in that game uh, and a walk, right? So obviously things didn't get off to a great start. They've had 16 plate appearances over six games since then. Again, these are such tiny samples, literally nothing matters. But if you look at the actual numbers in those 16 games, uh, and it's a 600 average and a slugging percentage over 1,000. And if you look at the expected average based on launch angle and exit velocity, it's 298 with a 536 expected slugging. Those are still pretty good numbers. I'm not saying that all of a sudden Kershaw owns Christian Yelich because that's not true either. But the, those are more human numbers. And I looked at all of these. So there have been 12 batted balls, nine of them for hits. And yes, two of them have been home runs and they were absolutely crushed because Christian Yelich is a very good hitter. But if you look at some of these, there are two different infield singles that didn't even reach the mound to Clayton Kershaw. There is a ground ball up the middle that Jimmy Rollins, remember Jimmy Rollins? He played for the Dodgers, couldn't turn into an out. And that's sort of the point here. Uh, there is really no predictive value in any of this. The outcome tonight could be that Clayton Kershaw dominates Yelich or gives up two crushed home runs. These numbers don't really tell you about it anyway. And if you remember uh, in game one, strikeout and a walk. You probably would have had the same story and none of it matters. Literally nothing matters. These things don't matter. Yeah, the, my, my, my feeling about um, better pitch at matchups has generally been I think, in theory, if we could isolate it, there might be some predictive value to it. Where if you said, like, oh, this this guy sees the ball well out of this guy's hand. I get it. The problem is that pitchers and hitters are constantly changing. And data, like, in 2015, Clayton Kershaw's average four-seam velocity was 94.2 miles an hour, and he threw the pitch 51% of the time. This year, his average four-seam velocity was 90.8 miles an hour, and he threw it 43% of the time. He is a different pitcher than he was even three years ago. As is Christian Yelich. And Christian Yelich is a different hitter. So, like, the trying to make make something out of data, even as recent as three years ago, it's 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 kind of useless. I tried to find a pitcher and hitter, both active players, who had a great deal of appearances against each other. And one example I found was Felix Hernandez against Ian Kinsler, who have faced one another 105 times. So you think to yourself, okay, that's a lot. Maybe there's something there. Well, the earliest of those goes back a dozen years ago to 2006. 
imagine how different both of those players are right now. There's a good argument that neither one of those players deserves to be in the major leagues next year. Now, Felix will be because he's still got his contract, um, but they're not stars. They're actually both below average players right now. None of it matters because it's simply not the same thing. And I think what teams are doing is they're not really looking at any of this. They're looking at uh, you know, how does a hitter perform against a pitch type? Let's say, oh, he's really good against fastballs that are delivered from this arm slot at this spin at this velocity. And hey, that guy happens to match that profile. This is a good matchup for them. That's what teams are doing. That's kind of the next step. And that's what I hope we're going to be able to do as well. Yep, for sure. You mentioned Ian Kinsler. So that's a good segue to the ALCS. It is. It's a great segue to the ALCS. And obviously the Astros and the Red Sox are I guess it's a very different series than the NL one is. Obviously, part of it's the DH and not the DH. It just it's the whole thing feels very different to me, and I can't really put my finger on why. And part of it, I guess, is um, Alex Bregman is having like a breakout series, and JD Martinez has not really crushed the ball yet, except maybe he has. Right, JD Martinez in postseason so far, two forty, three forty four, four hundred. It's okay. It's not great. But if you look at the underlying metrics, he has had an expected average of 327. It's actually better than his regular season of 309. And he's got an expected slugging of 657, which is better than his regular season of 619. He has 10 hard hit outs. And we define hard hit as being hit with a 95 mile an hour exit velocity or more. It's tied with Manny Machado for the most in the postseason. These numbers here that I'm about to tell you, I think are really interesting. On his hard hit balls in the regular season, he had an 818 weighted on base in the postseason, 185. That is somewhat of a difference. And you might think, okay, well, he's probably just pounding them all into the ground. That's actually what I thought at first, too. It's not true. In the regular season, on those hard hit balls, he had a 14-degree launch angle. And in the postseason, he has a 16-degree launch angle. That's not much of a difference. The expected numbers are actually almost identical. I don't want to say this is all bad luck, but I do think there's something to be said about the Red Sox having some pretty good positioning. We've seen that with Mookie Betts in the outfield before. And while we cannot... You mean the Astros? Uh, yes, I do mean the Astros, because he no longer plays for the Astros. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, George Springer, because they've done that. They actually yes. had a really good example of that. And obviously, we can't sit here and say that those stats are definitely guaranteeing that he's going to have more production, but it certainly says to me uh, he is doing fine, even if the numbers don't say it yet. I will be interesting to see if the, the breakout comes, because these these uh, quality of contact metrics suggest as much. Yes. Uh, he's also not getting pitched to, by the way. In the regular season, he saw 53% of pitches outside the zone. In the postseason, 67%. That's the most in baseball. I mean, the, the Red Sox lineup, as good as it is, and they've looked great of late. You know, they put up eight runs last night. It still feels like there's a drop off after in the second half of that lineup, especially you know when they're playing Nunez and Kinsler. I so, don't know why they're doing these things. <laughs> um, I, I doubt they'll be in the lineup tonight with the right hander Morton on the mound. I'm guessing that uh, Devers and uh, Holt will be back in the lineup. But so I could, there's to me there's plenty of reason the top of that Red Sox lineup when you get Betts, Benintendi, Martinez right in a row, and then Bogarts. But then after that, there's a a big gap and i could you know pitching, pitching around jd martinez is kind of understandable uh, but but jackie bradley did crush a grand slam yesterday yes he and did we showed that he has elite hard hit skills even if the production actually hasn't been there uh so i mentioned that jd martinez has seen the highest percentage of pitches outside the zone 67 percent fourth on that list at 61 percent is alex bregman who has had one of the most interesting postseasons he's hitting 467 714 1,000 in the postseason, and his plate discipline has been unbelievable. He has a 7% chase rate, where the major league average this postseason is 29%. So he has seen 76 pitches outside the zone. He's gone after only seven of them, 
Jose Altuve, by comparison, has gone after 44% of them. That is a big deal. And it really feels like, you know, I guess last year I kind of thought of Bregman as a solidly above average player who was maybe drowned out by Springer and Altuve and Carlos Correa. And now it seems pretty clear to me that Alex Bregman is kind of the uh, the straw that's, uh, you know, swinging the drink here, right? He's, I mean, he's the best. He's, he's the, I think he's the best player in the Astros right now. Yeah. And, and kind of establishing himself as a, as a top 10 player in the game. His, I mean, his play discipline has been Bonds-esque. He's just sort of you know, just spitting at everything. And it's been it's been fun. His at-bats are, are kind of must-see TV. I've been saying for like two years that I also think he's the best shortstop that they have. Right, I know he's the third baseman, uh, and they have Carlos Correa short, and that's I've always thought of Correa as like a good shortstop, but not an elite defensive one. And we saw when Correa got hurt, Bregman did play short this year, and he did it pretty well. He's been putting on a defensive clinic, and I want to use that just for a second to kind of talk about, hey, we are working on infield defense for Statcast. I know we haven't rolled much of that out yet this year at third base. Uh, defensive run saved had him as a negative and UZR had had him as a negative. And that is not in any way to bag on those stats because they've done an incredible job with what's available, but they are not really well equipped to handle the shift and the Astros shift more than any team in baseball, 37%. So I wanted to see if we could do better than that. And I looked at a very, very first version of what we're rolling out. And yes, Bregman's going to rate a lot better than that. But what I can say here is um, I looked at ground balls to third base in the postseason. And the way we defined third base is from the line over to uh, 30 degrees. And what that means is the line is 45 degrees. Uh, 30 degrees is kind of the line between shortstop and third base. And then zero degrees is straight up the middle. So I just kind of looked at that wedge. And what I wanted to do was look not just at the production there, because obviously that's affected by how hard the ball is hit. I looked at the difference between the expected average and the actual average. And wouldn't you know, on ground balls to third base there in the postseason, the Astros have had a 228 expected average and a .083 actual average. That is a 145-point difference. It's the best of any playoff team that got past the wild card. And in case you're wondering, there is some signal to this, because I looked at it in the regular season too. The Yankees were the worst at third base there, underperforming by 95 points, and the A's were the best, overperforming by 54 points. I don't think you need advanced metrics to know that Miguel Andujar is not a good third baseman, and Matt Chapman is a very, very good third baseman. So I guess my point here is that Alex Bregman is really pretty good and maybe better than the current metrics indicate. He's fun to watch. He's, he's so, so he's so sure of himself. My favorite play, I think, maybe of the last two postseasons was that play he made in Game 7 of the ALCS last year um, when the Astros were winning 1-0. And the slow chopper him with Brett Gardner on third, and he scooped it and threw right home, yes. like a perfect strike. Oh, Basically, I like that. it was like right at, like at, at the ankle, just to get a very fast Brett Gardner. And it just like he has such great instincts in the field, and um, so f- fundamentally sound, for lack of a better word. He's really such a well-rounded player. The the shortstop point it kind of reminds me a little bit of when Machado came up, and there was like a veteran at shortstop, so they were like, okay, we're gonna put you at third, and like. You know, the Orioles just kind of kept Machado at third, even though he was probably the better the better option. I wonder what's going to happen with Bregman. You know, Correa's had these back problems. Who knows if that will, that might give them an excuse to, to push Correa off short, make him more of a DH, or maybe third base is better. Or, I don't know if it's better or worse than the back, to be honest with you. But um, either way, it's pretty clear Bregman is a huge asset in the field. Yeah, and also he's just maybe my favorite personality of the postseason. Like, he's kind of made this heel turn, but, like, in a fun way where he's posting videos of them lighting up Vivaldi. Um, I I get a kick out of that, and I know that it annoys some people, but I don't care because I think it's hilarious. The last thing I want to talk about here is really the bullpens, and we talked a lot, I think, this postseason that the Houston bullpen 
We expect it to be great, and the Red Sox bullpen may be a little bit leaky. It hasn't necessarily worked out that way. If you just look at the ALCS, Red Sox relievers have allowed a 305 weighted on base. Houston's have been a 344 weighted on base. Now, part of that is because Roberto Asuna got lit up yesterday, but if you look at the best expected weighted on base and the best weighted on base of any reliever who's faced 10 postseason hitters, number one, Ryan Presley, your boy, which I point out really just to fluff ourselves up here because we've been talking about him for months. Uh, He went to the Astros and got better. Hey, recurring theme. You can go to the Astros and get better. Justin Verlander, Garrett Cole, Charlie Morton, Will Harris. I actually just wrote a big piece about this. Please feel free to look it up. Uh, That seems to be their thing. They draft hitters and they find other guys, other teams, pitchers, and they make them better. Ryan Presley being just the latest example of this. Yeah, the Morton on the mountain tonight isn't pitched in, I think, 17 days I saw and he's going to be a free agent this offseason. He will yes. be an interesting interesting yeah. interesting test case. Uh, and then since we just mentioned Evaldi, I think we have both chosen Nathan Evaldi, who is going to be a free agent and who is a Houston native, uh, the guy most likely to go to Houston and become a superstar. Because, listen, he threw, what, like a 96-mile-an-hour cutter the other day? That was an insane pitch after throwing 100 miles an hour. I almost think he's, he's too good now. There's going to be too he's – like, he's, he's priced himself out. I mean, you could argue – and this, this is why the starting pitching, pitching market this offseason is going to be fascinating because Corbin's the top guy. He'll, you know, I, I feel like him to the Yankees is basically a fait accompli. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, let's maybe Kershaw opts out, right? Okay. Well, let's say he doesn't or it gets re-signed. But yes, Corbin's going to be the best pitcher. And also, let's be honest, like the Kershaw we have now, the next three years, Corbin versus Kershaw, That's next five years. That's part of the reason. I think I saw our friend Adam Fisher tweet this. Uh that you know, it's a little unfair to get on him for not being dominant in the postseason now because he actually hasn't been dominant just anywhere lately. You know that kind of changes the narrative a little bit. He's, he, I mean, it's it's a different pitcher. You know, he's kind of it's it's reminding me a little bit of the late career Pedro Martinez uh, transformation, where like Pedro when he stopped having the great stuff, but he still could get by on location and guile. And that's I mean, that's kind of where Kershaw is right now when he's facing tough lineups. A guy who's basically throwing two pitches. You really have to be precise. Yes. Uh, so anyway, aside from him, Corbin to the Yankees, yeah, probably. And then it's Evaldi, Keuchel, Morton. But you know, there's a, there's a lot of guys who have had decent years but are not young, right? Like Jay Happ. You know, Marcus Stroud didn't have a good year. I, I, Evaldi is the youngest starter pitching available. Exactly. So I think he, he he is like fact. So I think that. But with a sizable injury history. Yes, and and off and a, and a, a spotty track record. But if you're looking at upside, it's. It's him, and then it's like Hyunjin Ryu, who has even more of an injury history than Evaldi does. So it's 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 an, for the teams looking for a starting pitcher. Like there's a wide scope of like what's like you could tell me anything from like two for thirty five to like five for eighty five for Evaldi, and I believe you. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to see. That's our show for this week. I guess looking ahead, we're going to have to try to schedule a show right before the World Series starts next week uh, because by the time we do this again, we're going to know who wins, and I'm really looking forward to that. Any of these four teams would be a fun combination. This is the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Thanks for listening. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best 
stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.